Our first scripture reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, yeah, I am. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he has a for he was afraid to look at God. Our second reading is taken from the book of Luke. Chapter 20, verses 27 to 38. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him the question, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow, and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be, for the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God. Being children of the resurrection and the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. 
One of my unfulfilled ambitions in life is to go on mastermind. One of the reasons it's unfulfilled is I can't decide what would be my specialist subject. My background is in mathematics and I have thought about some aspects of maths, but to tell you the truth, I haven't really used it a great deal in the last 12 years and I probably couldn't remember it well enough. I thought about talking about someone like Einstein or Stephen Hawking, who are heroes of mine, or perhaps something theological maybe, but then the embarrassment factor would kick in if I didn't know the answer to any of the questions. I wonder what Jesus's special subject would have been if he'd ever been invited to go on Mastermind. Certainly he was asked about a wide variety of things in the Jerusalem temple, which is where the action in today's reading takes place. And Luke's gospel puts a great deal of emphasis on Jesus's journey towards Jerusalem, beginning all the way back in chapter nine, verse 51, when we're told, Jesus sets his face to go there and taking us all the way through to partway through chapter 19 when he finally arrives in the city on what we now call Palm Sunday. And the first thing he did after arriving in clearly symbolic messianic fashion was to go to the temple and to overturn the tables of the money changers. So his arrival, if it wasn't controversial enough, was made even more so by those really challenging actions. And there's no doubt he would have upset quite a few people by doing that. And so in the subsequent days, we hear about various people who came and challenged Jesus, asking him about a range of subjects. We've got the Pharisees, one of the main groups within Judaism who focused on the synagogue movement on God's word, on holiness. And we've got the Herodians, who were representatives of the secular authorities, Herod being the puppet king appointed by Rome. And we've also got the Sadducees. They were characterized by a certain religious conservatism. They took the five books of the Torah as the only authoritative biblical texts. And therefore, they did not believe in resurrection from the dead, either a general resurrection of everybody or of a specific individual. And that's where this question to Jesus comes from. You see, others had tried and failed to trip Jesus up. Jesus had shown he could have a range of different specialist subjects and handle them perfectly well. And now they turn to this question of resurrection. Partly, I suppose, because it was very important to them, one of the things that distinguished them. But also, I wonder if they thought, now, if we can catch Jesus out where the Pharisees failed, then not only will we make Jesus look bad, but we'll get one up on our rivals as well. It didn't go quite as they'd imagined. Now, in this conversation, we are told effectively about an ancient Jewish practice, but a controversial one called Levite marriage. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 to 10, if you want to look it up. And in that section, 
it's laid out that in order to carry on a family name and to ensure that land was passed down from one generation to another, a childless widow could be married to the brother of her late husband. And that would mean that any children that came of that union were thought of as belonging to said late husband. It must have been a very controversial practice because as Leviticus chapter 20 shows us, there were also prohibitions in the Jewish law against marrying a brother's spouse. And it was this argument that was at the heart of Henry VIII's theological debacle when he wanted to get rid of Catherine of Aragon in order to be able to marry Anne Boleyn. Catherine had been married to his late brother Arthur and there was a lot of controversy as to whether they'd actually consummated that union and therefore whether by Henry marrying Catherine he was doing something that was prohibited. He believed he was and that that's why he hadn't been able to have any male children with her. The idea that the lack of fertility might have been his fault, that just didn't come onto the radar. The Sadducees, in today's little story that they put towards Jesus, give us a really extreme version of this practice. A woman is pictured as remaining childless despite being married to seven brothers before she herself finally dies. And the Sadducees, thinking that this is their gotcha moment, ask Jesus, well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection from the dead? Jesus's response is twofold. Firstly, in verses 34 to 36, he tells them that they've got the wrong idea about what resurrection life is going to be like. He points out that marriages are not made in the new creation in the way that they're made in this setting. And that's because our principal relationship in the new creation will be one with God, with Yahweh. And secondly, bringing us to our reading from Exodus, Jesus points out that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not was the God, is the God. In other words, God is the God of the living rather than the dead. We're told that this answer was sufficiently satisfactory that the scribes who tended to side with the Pharisees were impressed and told Jesus so, even though they themselves didn't dare ask him any further questions. So this might come across as a relatively abstract story, a story what we can too easily read as kind of Jesus one, Sadducees nil. But there's more going on here. Part of the reason Luke at the beginning of this little section has to remind us about the Sadducees' beliefs in resurrection or the lack of belief in resurrection is because by the time Luke's gospel was probably written around 80 to 85 of the common era, the Sadducees had become more than mildly irrelevant. You see, as well as being conservative about what texts they thought were authoritative, they also placed a great deal of emphasis on the temple system and its system of sacrifices and offerings. 
which is one of the reasons they would have been so cheesed off when Jesus blew that apart by overturning the traders' tables. But because the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, it meant that their focal point disappeared. Whereas the Pharisees, who'd always placed more emphasis on the word and on the synagogue movement, were able to continue to flourish. So it's likely that by the time Luke's gospel was written, particularly to a Gentile audience, most of them couldn't remember what the Sadducees were about. It begs the question then, why does Luke, writing for a Gentile audience, go to the trouble of telling us about this encounter with the Sadducees? Is it because resurrection was still a live issue at that time? Well, that's possible. We do see in Acts that there were ongoing conflicts between Pharisees and Sadducees. But I think it's probably got more to do with the way Luke has a really inclusive ethos in how he sets out his gospel. Luke places far greater emphasis on the stories of marginalized people than we find in any of the other gospels, and particularly the experiences of women. Now, of course, the story that the Sadducees told to try and catch Jesus out was fictional. But if you think about it, there's a really strong undercurrent of misogyny at work in that story. You see, the woman is treated purely as property. Her wants, her needs don't matter. She is passed down from man to man to man to man in the hope that eventually she will have a child. But there's no sort of sense that she's in control of her own body, that she has any autonomy. She is just a vehicle for the wants of the men in that household. It's a story, therefore, in which we see human bodies failing to be respected, the ground on which a person stands on not being treated as holy. As a trans man, I've had experiences in my life that maybe quite a lot of men haven't. And I remember one of the first instances of misogyny that I experienced. When I was a youngster, I was football crazy. Indeed, I was football crazy until I broke my leg in my 20s and then couldn't play anymore. If I need a ball, I'd be in absolute agony. And I was one, therefore, of the few girls who went along to the school football club on a Friday afternoon after lessons, which I really enjoyed. But one day, somewhat out of the blue, a lad in a year below me, called Nathan, I'd never spoken to him before, came up to me and just slapped me across the face with no explanation. As you can imagine, I was incredibly upset. And when our football coach, who'd seen what happened, asked him why he did that, he said, his dad said, girls are not supposed to play football. And so he was trying to stop me wanting to do that by being violent towards me. It was, sadly, something that I would encounter at various stages in different forms through my first not quite three decades of life. And then when I transitioned and didn't visibly fit into either a male or a female box, I encountered variants on the same sort of behavior. 
Misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia share the same root, I think, the same disdain for particular people's bodies. It's very difficult to be a person in a society where it feels like your very existence is political, that people feel they have the right to treat you not as someone who also stands on holy ground and therefore someone that they should respect and love as God does, but instead as someone that they can trample over. It's a situation that's only got worse in the last few years with relentlessly negative media coverage around trans people. Some of you may have come across Alex Claire Young, who is another trans person who's appeared on Songs of Praise, talking about their experiences in the United Reformed Church. And I was really struck the other day by something that they posted on Twitter about how a couple of years ago, when they went to different churches, they were asked, how can we make trans people feel welcome? How can we be inclusive? Whereas now, what they're being asked is, why should we include trans people? Why should we care? Why would we want to be inclusive? It shows the net effect of the constant demonization, the drip, drip, drip of everyday negative media stories. My body as a trans person is regarded as inherently political. It's regarded as something that can be trampled over by others or used for political gain. It's not regarded as holy ground. The events in the news of the past week, looking at the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers in this country shows that trans people are not the only people whose bodies are treated in that way, whose existence is regarded as inherently political. We do not, it seems in this country, have the collective compassion to treat asylum seekers as like us standing on holy ground before our God. And this needs to change. In today's reading, Jesus makes it clear that in the life of the kingdom of God, there won't be the kind of treatment that could lead to a woman being used as property passed from man to man to man. It's one example of how the life of the new creation transforms the here and now. We're called as siblings in Christ to play our part in bringing about these kinds of transformations in the here and now. To recognize that when we look at another person, we are standing on holy ground. And therefore we need to tread carefully with respect recognizing the value God places on each and every person. Something that's exemplified when we come together to share in Holy Communion as we are today. Because when we share in communion, we're all equal at God's table. Everybody has their share and their place. And we all have that place, not because we've earned it or we're good enough somehow, but because God loves us and God's grace reaches out to all of us. Rowan Williams once said that when we stand at the communion rail or however it's arranged in any particular church and we share together and we look at our siblings in Christ, we should do so with awe and wonder. Because in that instance, when each person receives bread and wine, 
It shows the value God places on that person. It shows that we're on holy ground. So as we come to sharing communion in a few minutes, may we take from that experience something of the sense of wonder that Moses had when he encountered the burning bush and was told to remove his sandals because of the holy ground on which he stood. And may we commit ourselves to work for justice so that the value of all people in our world might be respected. And so that God's justice, God's kingdom life, God's resurrection hope would be a present reality. Amen. As we bring our prayers to God this morning, we remember the family of Mark Bevis. Mark died very suddenly this week uh, in Colombia. Um, his father, Keith, was until recently in membership with us. Keith and Carl, Mark's brother, have flown out to Colombia where the funeral has happened. So we remember that family in our prayers this morning. Lord God, as we bow in prayer before you, we bring you our praise and worship. You are almighty, the great creator. You sustain all things. You are enthroned in glory. And yet we, your children, can come to you without fear to the great unchanging God. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your continued faithfulness. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your long-suffering patience and mercy towards us, your children. We pray this morning for the Bevis family as they mourn Mark. Bring them comfort in their shock and grief. Give protection and safety to those who've travelled to the funeral. Give each one of them a sense of your felt presence with them. Soften the sharpness of grief and sweeten the bitterness of memories of their lost father, son and brother. Wipe the tears of all who mourn at this time. May Jesus Christ, who was acquainted with grief, be ever close to each who mourn today. We pray for our world and we pray for our world leaders. May each of them realize the power of words, words that can build peace, words that can bring people together, words that can do good. We pray that where there are words of war, words of aggression, words of nationalistic pride, leaders might turn aside from this that they might seek peace, that they might seek to talk with one another and try to resolve differences. May there be no room for pride or grievance, but room for words of truth, words of reconciliation and words of hope. We pray for the group from this church that is visiting Israel and Palestine at this time 
protect them in their journeys and grant peace to that region, we pray. We pray for our own nation and our own national leaders. May they too realise the power of words. In recent days, words have been used by those in the public eye to stir up fear and hatred. Fear of refugees fleeing danger, exploitation and persecution. Fear of minorities. Fear of trans people. Fear of racial minorities. Fear of anyone different. People who are just seeking to live out their lives in peace and safety with equality of opportunity. Turn the hearts, we pray, of those who seek to sow division, those who seek to scapegoat the other, those who try to deflect attention away, away from the causes and solutions of the present ills in our society. Help us as a church to realise the power of words. We sing, we pray, we read, we hear. May we do these things sincerely, paying attention to the words. Write the message of today's sermon on our hearts, we pray. And so we pray for ourselves, that we also might realise the power of words in our lives, how easily we can snap impatiently, give an unkind retort, mock our fellow humans, Help each one of us to guard our tongues. Help all of us instead to use words to encourage one another. Build one another up. Build respect and esteem one for another. Help us in our workplaces. Help us in the church. In our families and in our homes. Always to be truthful, unselfish and kind with one another. We pause now and bring before you the secret matters of our hearts, our prayers for those we love and worry about, and for our own selves. Faithful God, hear the spoken and unspoken words of our prayers. Have mercy on us. May all we do and say bring glory to your name. Amen. Let us say the grace of the Lord together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.